Action Park Media. Hi, I'm Ethan Suplee. Welcome to American Glutton. Outside of acting, my two favorite things to do are diet and eat. I have a very complicated relationship with food, and on this podcast, we're going to talk about all of it. Food as entertainment. Food as sport. Food as fuel. I'll talk to experts and the average person, just like you and me. I hate to ask you to do anything, but if you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to like, subscribe, rate, review, all of the above on whatever app you're getting it from. Today on American Glutton, I'm happy to welcome Mark Bittman. He's a New York Times bestselling author, food journalist, and columnist. He is also the special advisor on food policy at Columbia University's Mailman School of Public Health. We're going to talk about his latest book, Animal Vegetable Junk. You can find Mark on Instagram at Mark Bittman. Mark Bittman, welcome to the American Glutton Podcast. It's great to be here. I have a lot of various questions for you about everything. I want to talk about your book. The most recent book is called Animal Vegetable Junk, and that's mostly what we've been talking about. Animal what? Vegetable Junk. I mean, that sounds amazing. Okay. I mean, yeah. Okay. Are these are these rated in, are these listed out in some kind of uh, uh rating like animal it comes before vegetable like how, how how what are the what are the priorities here well really it's you know it's a catchy title but it's a description of the relationship between humans and agriculture is going back for millennia and obviously animals and plants were our first foods agriculture began 10,000 years ago but junk was really only introduced into our diet 150 years ago or so and it's where all of our problems began or it's our problems didn't necessarily begin with junk but our problems began with the agriculture that produces junk and junk has a whole series of public health problems of its own that are you know that are mostly well known so so the title is a description of where we were with agriculture with eating and agriculture where we are with eating and agriculture and where we need to be going with eating and agriculture that's that's where the book is at i can't imagine what junk food was like 150 years ago do you have examples of that in the book like where it for, it's first appeared I mean, 150 is a bit of a stretch. 140, you have you have white bread, packaged white bread. But 140 years ago, we sort of saw the invention of Coca-Cola. Um, a couple other things too that are not coming to mind, but there's no better example than Coke, and that was late 19th century, so 125 to 150 years ago, and that's kind of the paradigm. I mean, if you want to talk about it's this candy bar in liquid form, um, just straight sugar in liquid form, and and nothing really could be much worse for you than and still call itself a food than than that. Right. And not to get us in super deep legal trouble, trouble or anything like that, but Coca-Cola it, at its advent had cocaine in it. Right. I mean, that's the the uh, myth that I hear. 
I, I think it did, but you know, Coca-Cola now has caffeine in it, which is every bit as addictive. I mean, you you know, there are some percentage of people in the United States that start their day with a cola beverage, not necessarily Coke could be Pepsi or Dr. Pepper or Mountain Dew, which is not a cola, but also has caffeine, but start their day with a sugar-sweetened beverage that has caffeine in it instead of coffee. Um, the major difference being that most people don't put nine teaspoons of sugar in their coffee. I'm sure some do, but... Most don't. I mean, you if you're going to sit and do that on your own, that is a big commitment. Right. Well, I mean, that's the interesting thing about junk food or one of the many interesting things about junk food is that you can't really make it on your own. And if you could, you probably wouldn't have the conscience to do it. I mean, it's a good point. If you took an average size mug of coffee and sat there and put nine teaspoons of sugar in it, A, it would be so sweet you couldn't possibly drink it. And B, you'd freak out. You'd be like, what am I doing? What am I doing here? Four, five, six, seven. You know what I mean? What? Yeah, I get, I get um, completely perplexed going to get coffee. Um, I don't make particularly good coffee. So if for say my wife is out of town or even my children make better coffee than I do, if uh, and they go to, I could teach you state. how to make good coffee if you want. They've, but they've we'll all talk sat about that down. later. Yeah, we've had pour over. We've had the thing where you just have a little capsule of coffee and somehow that makes coffee. I screw it up no matter what. So I, tend to <laughs> on my own go out for coffee and the thing that is so shocking to me is the um the milkshakes for breakfast that people like which to me is even beyond uh like a coke i can't imagine drinking a coke to start my day but imagining a coke with ice cream at like one of these corporate coffee places where there's like now it's drizzled and whipped cream and everything else. And they've created a bigger lid to cram everything that sits on top of it in there. <laughs> this is a wild thing in modernity, you know? Yeah, it is a wild thing. And it's true. It's it's funny if you think about starting your day for a root with a root beer float. That's kind of what you're what you're looking at. I mean, yeah. it's there's no regulation, there's no uh morality, there's no there's no consciousness around this stuff. They will sell whatever they can sell regardless of the consequences. And people do like sugar. We are hardwired to eat sugar and it's also got addictive qualities to it. So if, you know, Starbucks, McDonald's, Dunkin' Donuts, anybody, they will market the hell out of sugar and, and people will eat it. And, um, you know, people can only eat what's out there and we all know we're, we're brought up. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. The 50s, at least, we have all been brought up in the presence of sugar-sweetened beverages, of sugar-sweetened cereals, of ice cream everywhere. David Kessler, former FDA commissioner, calls the United States a food carnival, and that's really what it is. It's like you're walking down a midway and people are selling you uh, funnel cakes. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, funnel cakes. Um and we all have trouble resisting that stuff because we grew up being taught that it was a treat and we grew up relishing it and, and we grew up enjoying it. And, and that becomes a habit that shapes your food preferences. So we all know how difficult it is. You could walk into 
uh, Starbucks with all the best intentions of getting a, a black drip coffee and, and you can find yourself walking out with a frappuccino and the same is true with McDonald's and the same is true with, with every place. They will tell you that there are healthy choices, but really almost all the choices are unhealthy and we all have trouble resisting. I mean, we all do better resisting it resisting that stuff sometimes than we do others but we all break down from time to time and some of us more often than others and the fact that junk food is just omnipresent every single place um it makes it really a challenge for for most of us yeah you know even at um i remember i was recently in a staples or or something like that you know it's an office store i was getting paper for a printer and checking out there was candy at the checkout and i was just like this is this is wild how it is every you cannot go anywhere and not be confronted with some of this stuff i wonder if staples even has a candy aisle or a snack aisle because you know under this sort of logic that well if you're shopping for your office there's always office snacks i mean yeah it is omnipresent and you know i keep saying i'm gonna do this and um and I'm going to try to do it. Uh, I would like to walk down the aisles of a regular supermarket with my camera and just videotape just the the back and forth of it. Because statistically, 60% of the calories sold in the United States are from ultra processed food. And if you go to it, and that's equivalent to junk food. And if you go to a supermarket and you walk up and down the aisles and you pay attention, that's what you'll see. We think of supermarkets, you know, they want to give us the impression of you walk in, there's this beautiful produce section and there is, and then there's the dairy and there's the meat and there's, but that's really kind of it. And even the produce section and the dairy and the meat sections are, inundated with junk food so and then the rest of the aisles are there's the chips aisle and there's the soda aisle and there's the candy aisle and there's the cookie aisle and there's the breakfast cereal aisle every one of those foods is bad for you every one of those foods is made from sort of the same two or three ingredients beaten to a pulp and and ultra processed as we say and usually with a ton of added sugar yeah i i even you know, I, I, we don't drink a lot of juice. I do have a, a daughter with t- type one diabetes. So in our household, we think of juice as like a, a medicinal thing. If her blood sugar drops, the juice is used to raise her blood sugar quickly. Mm-hmm. That's why it's here. Um, but I remember um, watching a program on how, you know, a hundred percent orange juice is made. And like, it goes through a process where it's, it's got no resemblance to juice at all. They've taken the oranges, they've basically turned them into water, then they've chemically processed the peels to reconcentrate the flavor of juice and added it back in. And and it's just this bizarre thing to wind up with juice, um, which is also... No, I don't know that story. I'll have to look at that. That's interesting. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean... I'm sure you can find fresh squeezed juice at the grocery store, but the majority of the juices, when you look at, and it says a hundred, I'm not going to out any of these companies, but uh, you know, it's in a cart, a cardboard carton that gets pasteurized. It's turned into basically sterile water. And then the, the peels are used to 
that, that be chemically manipulated and the the sugar is separated, all gets separated and then recombined to create this thing that's called pure juice. It's a really 100% bizarre pure juice. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I, I remember talking about, um, you know, going into a place and winding up with a, a going in for a coffee and winding up with a, a milkshake. And it was started me thinking about milkshakes. One of the points for me, I have a lot of memories of um, personal lows and, and points that I reflect on when I'm tempted to get off track. Cause I've been fairly on track for a number of years now and successfully doing that. And it was, um, you know, going to an in and out, which I at the time thought of as the healthy fast food, right? Right. Because right. you watched them chop the potatoes up before they fried them. That was that was it. Yeah, there was a time that in and out was really had a good reputation. <laughs> yeah, it was, you know, it was like the, uh, it wasn't organic ever, but that's how I thought it was like the whole foods of fast right. food. Right, right. Um, and uh, they sold these tiny little milkshakes, but they sold gigantic you know liters of soda and i was trying to convince the girl to sell me four milkshakes in one giant soda container and she just absolutely wouldn't do it and i said i'll pay for the soda i'll pay for all four milkshakes i just need you to dump them in there so i don't create a mess in my car and she would not do it and and i was so angry at her and later i was kind of like no i think she probably did uh, you know what was morally correct for her and the right. store but uh, aren't the portions a, a big factor in this? Like I think of, you said we're hardwired. And, and I think, I think that that's really true because I think for the longest time when a human being came in contact with sugar, it was in the form of like seasonal fruit. And, yeah, absolutely. And, and our bodies went, we need to eat as much of this as we can to store it for later use. And, and so now that it's so, abundant i don't know that we've evolved out of that or if we can evolve out of that or how that's going to work well i think we have to evolve out of that we haven't um and that you know that's what the sugar sweetened beverage and other other industries dependent on sugar as a major ingredient are taking advantage of is when when i was a kid I mean, when I was a kid, a soda was seven ounces. I mean, a bottle of Coke was seven ounces. And now the smallest size Coke you can get in like a McDonald's is maybe 12 or maybe 16. And, you know, a bottle is 12 or 16 or sometimes 20 and a can is 12 or 16. And the common thing is to buy a two liter bottle for 99 cents, which is just, you know, an unbelievable bargain i mean it's just incredibly cheap um but sugar is cheap and high fructose corn syrup is even cheaper so um they will put as much of it in there as they can get you to to consume and again we like the taste that we are hardwired to to enjoy sweet things and um there is a way in which it's the more the merrier does subsidization play some role in this and 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 I, I, I'm not a historian and I don't know exactly how this works, but I believe that it was like coming out of the great depression when there was, um, 
legitimate famine in in this country that you started to see subsidization programs roll out and and that seems to have led to a giant boom in all of this well actually it's earlier than that and um in in a real in a very real way the united states was founded on growing not just sugar but commodity crops in general and and the government always encouraged that encouraged people to grow cash crops sell those and use the money to support themselves rather than to say let's create a network of farms that grow a wide variety of food so that we can all eat well that was never really a consideration in this country and um the subsidies really began after world war 1 um when prices fell and 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 the government wanted to encourage farmers to continue to grow at that time it was wheat and then later corn was subsidized and soybeans it's not so much direct subsidies i mean direct subsidies matter for sure but in the last 50 75 years the whole infrastructure has grown up around the production of mostly corn i mean corn is by far our number one crop and a lot of sugar comes from corn in the in the form of high fructose corn syrup which was really in, only invented in the 70s it's only 50 years old um but it's not so much direct subsidies, although direct subsidies do exist. I don't want to say they don't, but it's also that everything in the system is geared toward making those crops and the processing of those crops the easiest, most profitable thing, especially for big farmers. And most farmers are big farmers at this point because um, there's been a period of consolidation in the last, again, 50 to 100 years. So you could go to Iowa and you can grow anything in that soil. Iowa used to be, uh, I think, the second leading producer of tomatoes in the United States, the leading producer of apples. I mean, you can grow. It's beautiful, beautiful farmland. But you talk to farmers and they'll tell you that even if they want to grow oats or even if they want to grow rye, which are, you know could not be that much different from growing corn or soybeans. They're row crops. You can grow them by the acre. This the system, the whole infrastructure is geared toward bringing corn to the grain elevator and the trucks are there to pick up corn and the grain elevator set to weigh the corn and the grain elevator set to store the corn and ship the corn. Um, it's corn and soybeans. If even if you try to grow a different kind of grain, it's just discouraged. It's not actively discouraged. It makes your life harder and you're going to make less money. So if you're going to switch from if you're going to try to switch from growing corn to growing tomatoes or growing a variety of of row crops, it's just you're going to be a small farmer. And there are people who are doing that. But for a, a family who's used to to farming 3,000 acres of corn and making a living doing that, having the equipment, having the relationships, having a system down to make that transition doesn't matter whether it's subsidized. It's kind of the only way to go. Right. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. I mean, it's subsidized. It does matter that it's subsidized. But what I mean to say is it doesn't matter that it's directly subsidized, like here's five bucks for every acre of corn you grow. It's like, if you're going to grow anything else, your life is going to be so hard, you're not going to make any money at all. 
Right. So there's just like so many different incentives to grow corn and soybeans and wheat and so many disincentives to grow almost anything else. I, I, I understand, I think, mostly what corn is used for. It's used in part for ethanol, right? And it, it's, yeah. it feeds the cows. Yep. We're largely feeding cattle on, soy, on corn and uh, high fructose corn syrup, which is uh, kind of in anything you think of as sweet nowadays. That or even many things you think of as not sweet. I mean, right. <laughs> let me interrupt you for a second. No, I'm please. sorry, because I mean, you're absolutely right. It's about a third of the corn grown is used for ethanol. About a third is used for animal feed. And it's not just cows, it's pigs and chickens as well. And about a third is used not just for high fructose corn syrup, but for junk food in general. But a lot of that is is in the form of high fructose corn syrup. And, and you know, you don't think of tomato sauce is sweet. You don't think of salad dressing is sweet. There's a host of things you don't think of as sweet that have sugar or high fructose corn syrup snuck into them. Right. So, I I mean, I did interrupt you. So, no, no, I appreciate it a lot because I I would never, ever assume that tomato sauce had had that in it, you know, but every one of them does. You just have a look. Yeah. Yeah. Which is which is also wild. Um, I'm not so clear on what soy is used for because I I associate soy with like I'm eating edamame which I think are soybeans if I go to have sushi or tofu but what else is that used for yeah I mean edamame and tofu is like saying corn is used for corn on the cob I mean it's such a small percentage of it I mean most of it uh, first of all, there's a tremendous amount of cooking oil that's made from soy. Uh, soy protein is soy is the other half of the animal feed equation. So it's corn and soy. Okay. Um, so I don't know exact percentages on on soybeans, and the crop is smaller, although it's huge, smaller than the corn crop. But I would guess that a higher percentage of soybeans is used for animal feed than than corn and uh, a higher percentage is used for cooking oil than corn but that soy protein is in every every uh processed food all the fake meat um anything that you might all sort of all kind of heat and eat kind of foods that are that are composed foods or like pressed nuggets or that kind of stuff it's all there's tons and tons of soy in those products Right. Yeah, it becomes when I think one of the biggest changes I I made and 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 it involved literally like uh, things as basic as taking different routes home at night to avoid the uh, temptation of fast food, Um, but was really just to and and without without the names, like I know there's like paleo and whole 30 and and a bunch of different diets that encourage eating whole foods. But even without that, like going to the supermarket, staying on the periphery, because once you make your way inside, it's all basically processed. But I think just for, for me, which my, my biggest goal was weight loss. And for a lot of people I talk to who have similar goals, I think there can be nothing better than to take a break at least from this kind of processed food and have some separation, see how you feel, see how your body reacts to eating foods that don't have a ton of ingredients. Um, 
I mean, I think that's really smart. You mentioned my book, Vegan Before Six, which, as I said, is about 10 years old. But that was a period where I'd come to the same conclusion. Um, and the book is 10 years old, but I started I started eating that way five years before that. But but the idea was we just we just need to step away from junk food. We need to step away from animal products. And it doesn't mean eliminating them. But for most of us, there's just there's because of the availability and the omnipresence of that kind of destructive food, it's hard for people to say, okay, I'm going to eat a good, you can say, I'm going to eat a good diet. But, you know, as we were talking about before, you walk into that Starbucks and you think, oh, Frappuccino sounds really great. Um, So I made this rule for myself uh, back then that I was going to eat a very strict diet of only plants as close to natural uh, as possible. No white food, no junk food, no animal products. Every day from time I woke up until six o'clock at night, and then I would allow myself to eat pretty much whatever I wanted to for dinner. And my diet changed tremendously. I lost a lot of weight. All my numbers went in the right direction and so on and so on. Pretty much what you'd expect. And I don't really think it matters how you do that, how you eat less junk food, how you eat more whole foods, more especially plants, fewer animal products. Those are the keys to a good diet. There's not much more to it than that. However you do it is is right. But for so many people, especially people who eat most of their meals on the road or through takeout or drive-throughs or or whatever, it's really, really hard because the temptations are just always there. It's much easier if you can stay home, if you can cook for yourself, if you can shop for yourself, if you can avoid buying potato chips, ice cream, et cetera, et cetera, and not even have that stuff in the house. Um it makes it much, much easier. But but for so many people, it's just impossible because we're eating we're eating from the drive through. Yeah, I think that 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 what you're touching on is the key, because I, I know for myself, when I'm away from home, even on a travel day, I now take my food with me. It becomes so difficult to eat pretty much anywhere, even at a restaurant. I don't really trust what's going into the food. Right. Right. And and I'll consider that like a diet break if I have to do that. Um, I I have become very much uh, responsible for everything that goes into my body. And when I say that, I mean, like the difference between going from eating without thought to eating with a lot of thought into it is th- I found that the volume of of food increases so much when you remove the processing from it that I'm never hungry anymore. And I'm actually on a diet, which is um, completely counterintuitive or was counterintuitive for me. Um, I would be, I would be uh, scared. I think I'd have to read your book because if I think um, if I eat just a vegan diet before six, I'm going for French fries and, you know, grilled cheese sandwiches made with, you know, nut cheese or something like this. And I know that that's not what you're saying, because that's yeah. well, I'm actually saying 
no processed food, so no French <laughs> right. fries and no and no and no fake cheese sandwiches. I think it's important to remember that vegan doesn't mean good. It, it means an absence of meat. It doesn't mean the presence of good whole foods. And and I think that it's important, you know, to add as close to natural form as possible. We want to be eating you know, vegetables, fruits, nuts, seeds, and so on. But we want to be eating them in their natural form. We don't want to be eating fake meat, fake cheese, French fries. Coke is vegan for that matter. So <laughs> the word vegan doesn't preclude junk and the word organic doesn't preclude junk. So you have to be careful about saying, oh, I eat all organic or, oh, I'm a vegan. Doesn't necessarily mean you have a good diet. Yeah, I, I made this mistake when I was, you know, in my search for the diet that worked best for me. I did the uh, four hour body by Tim Ferriss. And he had like, I believe at one point it was even like, if you're doing well, you can have two cheat days or a full cheat day. This was a total disaster for me because if you take any regulation away, I can cram 12,000 calories into a day and it's all processed. And I, you don't even realize you're eating, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, so I, I think, think that's, I, you know, it's funny. Uh, I often, I've been a runner for most of my life and I often feel it's easier to run every day than it is to run two days out of three, because as soon as you take time off, you lose your rhythm. And it's the same thing with eating. It's easier to eat well all the time than to do, I mean, I find intermittent fasting incredibly challenging. I've tried it. Um, vegan before six is a form of intermittent fasting, but I mean, it really is whatever works for you as an individual. We all know what our weaknesses are, but I agree with you that in a way, setting some kind of standards for yourself, some some group of rules for yourself, not really making any exceptions is is the easiest in a way thing to do yeah yeah for, for i think the uh the biggest thing that i have gotten away from is like i love your your analogy and the picture you paint where like the the food scheme in america is the carnival because i i was constantly entertaining myself with food and and it's one of those things where if you if you if you do something that much, it no longer has its allure. There's no, you're, you're just becoming numb, you know, like what are the, the few things in life? I really like to eat delicious things. I can still eat delicious things. They are more delicious um, when I'm not numbing myself with a, an over inundation with sugar and fat and things that are so concentrated. So I, it's been a good trade-off for me and, and I couldn't agree more to st staying away from processed foods is, you know, has changed the paradigm entirely for myself. Right. I'm just trying to think of, you know, I, I started this podcast of my own about two, three months ago called Food with Mark Bittman. And so I've talked to, you know, a dozen people like this for a long time, ranging from Ted Danson, Nigella Lawson, Moby. We've had some food people on, Tom Colicchio and some non-food people. But whenever we get around to talking about diet, it's kind of the same conversation people have their own set of rules they do it their own way but they all know what direction 
I mean, these are, you know, these are smart, well-educated people. Everybody knows what direction they need to be taking their, their diet in and, and everybody struggles with it. Almost everybody struggles with it because we've all grown up in a society where we've been encouraged to eat junk. We've been encouraged to eat high fat, super sweet, highly processed foods, but you know, everybody you talk to is working on it. Everybody, almost everybody you talk to is working on it. Yeah. I don't know a single person um, from very, very fit people to very obese people that doesn't have some portion of their attention stuck on this from time to time, or if not constantly, it is, it is really amazing. I, I think it becomes overwhelming with the amount of choice and variety. And, and especially if you, I, I always go back to what I think we're physically programmed to to want. And, and the fact of the matter is that being obese takes longer to kill you than starving. So our bodies are going to fight for that. You know? Yeah. So yeah, it is, it is, that's good. That's good. That's true though, too. Yeah. I, I really think of it as this, like, uh, that I am constantly in a battle with my baser needs that are going like for the purposes of posterity, we're going to get you fat. You know, you're right. going to, you're going to get through the procreation zone, whatever that is. And who cares if you die after that, but right. I care. That's exactly, that's all. That's exactly right. Though. But yeah, you're right. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. And, and there, there's no way that your your reptilian mind could possibly know that almost no one in the United States is in danger of starving to death, and and 50 percent of the population is in danger of dying prematurely from eating badly. So yeah, yeah. yeah. And it, you're right. Your body only cares that you make it until you're 35 anyway. So all bets are off after that. <laughs> it doesn't care. You know, even going to the gym, I'm convincing. I'm tr- I'm like trying to think about this as analytically and rationally as possible. And I'm, I'm telling my body, this is what we have to do to survive. My body doesn't know I'm not out like wrestling lions. It doesn't know. There's no difference for it. Or I'm out yeah. harvesting food or what right. it might be. Right. Um, uh, amazing. Well, I, I can't wait to listen to your podcast. What are some things that you have as suggestions? And I know we've gone over them um, in broad strokes, but for, because there was a point where I, had no idea, you know, I just, I just thought like, and, and I was kind of um, sold on a number of different things that I wasn't super successful at, which were like, number one, just eat 500 calories a day for two months, and then you're fixed or um, Mm. eat, eat in ketosis, and then you never have to think about anything else or these kind of things. But I really appreciate what you're saying that it is individual. So Within that framework, what are some um, kind of broad ideas for people? I mean, honestly, I think it's so simple because if you say to someone, if you use the phrase good diet, almost everybody knows the same images come into almost everyone's mind. And it really is. I'm not saying this is this is not how you do it, but what you do is you eat more food from the plant kingdom, you eat less junk food, and you eat less pure animal products. And 
That's the first step. And then the second step is to say, well, what precisely are you eating? Because as you said, and as I said, I guess, vegan food can be junk food. So then you look at those foods from the from the plant world that you're eating and you say, am I, am I eating the right way? Um, but when I say everybody has to figure it out for themselves, I think I mean everybody needs to figure out how to do it themselves, what what um, what their day-to-day life looks like. But the fundamental rules, I mean, for 95, maybe more percentage of humans, the fundamental rules are the same rules that when they're basically eat as as many foods from the plant kingdom in as close to natural form as you can and minimize everything else, especially junk food. I think for most people, the closer you can come to eliminating junk food from your life, the better off you are. Now that's a tall order. It's really hard for people. But if every time you, you know, if every time you crave the Coke, you had a glass of water. And if every time you, you crave the cheeseburger, you had a, an apple, I mean, you'd be in unbelievably good, or even four apples, you'd be in unbelievably good shape. Yeah, it does become unbelievably complicated. I had a a buddy who was woefully addicted to soda. And when I got really into it with him, he literally said to me that it was cheaper to buy this like off-brand two-liter bottles of soda than it was for for him to buy water and he didn't want to drink tap water. I I was shocked by this, Um, you know, and, and we've always had, you know, water delivery plus water filtration systems on all the spigots of our house. And so I just never even considered that that could be a possibility of just the, the accessibility to clean water in that way. Um, which is shocking. And, and, and then you can look at even some bottled water has multiple ingredients like, you know, Coke also sells water and, and right. it's not right. just water. It's got other right. stuff in it. Well, the so-called vitamin water and so-called smart water, more good examples of a good food turned bad in a way. Yeah. You want to keep things simple and you want to keep things I really, if you had your, if you had your druthers, you'd want to eat food that didn't exist. Only food that did exist a hundred years ago. You don't want to eat anything that's been invented in the last hundred years. And I like, I like imagining Coke um, in its purest form, you know, seven ounces, you got it maybe (laughs) twice a year. (laughs) You know, this to me is the way Coke should be had. And I bet when you had it, it was a magical experience. Yeah. I mean, even if it's twice a week, but the thing is on average, I think we were drinking, I think Americans were drinking, maybe still are 50 gallons a year of sugar sweetened beverages, which is, you know, a quart a day or half a quart a day, a pint a day. Um, and and soda consumption is down, but of course consumption of Gatorade and sweetened waters and Snapple and all of that stuff is up. So the consumption of sugar hasn't gone down at all, and sugar sweetened beverages is still a major source of it. Yeah. Oh man, it it, it really does become. It feels overwhelming in those yeah. terms, you know. Yeah, it's it's challenging for sure. But I but but I bet that um, for people who have certainly weight loss goals or health goals, just eliminating that is a great first step, you know. Yeah, 
eliminating junk food. I mean, eliminating sodas for a lot of people is the, is the first step, but junk food in general. Um, and then finally packaged food, I think is sort of the third step. I mean, ideally people would shop and cook for themselves. Obviously not everybody can do that. So we need to figure out a way that it's as easy for people to eat good food as it is for people to eat bad food. We've, We've really, the government and the industry has really made it easy as can be to eat food that's bad for us. And it could have gone a different direction, but it didn't. Yeah, the the convenience is a big big thing. I think um, uh, another thing that I've found helpful is when when it did become important enough to me the act of taking a Sunday afternoon and spending a few hours and making my food for the majority of the week mm-hmm. was really massively helpful because I was able then, I, I find that when I'm hungry, I make decisions that are not as beneficial to my life as when I'm sated or full. And even like going grocery shopping, I won't do that hungry because stuff just appears in my shopping cart that I wouldn't have otherwise put in there, you know? And so uh, this act of taking a few hours Sunday, and then you find ways to streamline it, you know, so it doesn't take up such a huge part of your time off. But um, I've spent most of my career, I should send you some cookbooks. I've spent most of my career doing exactly that. And it sounds like you have it figured out, which is great. I mean, I, I've been doing this for a while. I, I've been dieting for 20 years. It's only the last like five years that I've gotten to something that I can actually go like, this isn't ruining my life doing this. You know, my life is enhanced. Um, That's great. Yeah, but I would love to read your, your cookbooks. They sound fantastic. Yeah, I'll send you some stuff. Let's we'll exchange emails after. Yeah, certainly. Mark, thank you so much. I look forward to listening to your podcast. I read that uh, you had Tom Colicchio on, and I, I, I'm a huge admirer of his. So I'm that for was sure a good interview, to too. Yeah, yeah, he's great. We read yeah. It was really good. The Moby yeah. thing. We had a lot of fun. Yeah, we had a lot of fun. And I think the second season we're going to start in the fall. Have some thoughts about how to make it better. I mean, you've been doing this long enough to know that you can always figure out a way to tweak it and make it better. So we're going to keep moving forward, I think. For sure. Thank you for having me on. Mark, I appreciate it very much. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. And now for the Q&A. Well, we've got a question here from Joe. Hi, Joe. Joe, hold on. <laughs> I need a second. Joe, we answered your question already, and I'm a moron and didn't press record. Yeah. So I'm very sorry. Well, you're going to get an answer, Joe. I yeah, hope. we're going to do it again. It's uh, probably not going to be as good as the last one. Maybe it'll be better. Let's try it. So right. Joe asks, first he says, I'm new to your personal story. God bless you, Ethan. I was shocked to learn you were the same guy that I knew from so many great movies. I'm a huge fan on both counts. Thank you, Joe. Your podcast taught me maintenance. Yay. I knew you'd like that. (laughs) This idea. (laughs) See, now I have the giggles. Sorry, Joe. Um, Okay, so he says, this idea helps me stay the course without feeling defeated. I'm age 53, 5'10". 256 pounds down from 291. 
Nice. My whole childhood, I was too skinny and I ate anything. And I never changed the eating, so I've struggled with obesity in adult life. I'm kind of in your bike phase trying to cut weight through force of will. I figured I'd cut first to get to the weight to get the weight off my body as a step one. My goal for 2021 is to get under 200 pounds. I count walking miles, daily food calories, and measure success on the scale. But after your recent episode about building muscle, I'm starting to understand there's more nuance. It's not just a number. My question is, can you share some insight on how to add healthy muscle to the routine in a more sustainable way? Moreover, could I rethink weight as the ultimate goal? If so, what metric would I use to measure success? Yes. So like I get really hung up on, on the numbers too, because in total fairness and honesty, I believe right now I'm still obese. Like as far as the BMI goes, really? I think so. At least overweight. I'm certainly overweight. And so, you know, I, I have very clean blood. I have a low resting heart rate. I'm not hypertensive. Like the health markers are good, but as far as the BMI goes, I'm too heavy. I don't really give a shit about the number anymore. Um, I want a low body fat percentage and I want to, you know, not wheeze walking upstairs. And like, these are the things I want for, for, I I don't know what to tell you to have as a goal, but you could have like a pant size as a goal. You could have a certain visible muscle as a goal. You could have a health marker as a goal. Whatever your goal is, is your goal. If it's a number, then it's a number, but the numbers uh, don't have to be the be all end all in my opinion. So those can be other metrics for success, which you've talked about before. What are your goals? Are you meeting those goals? So yeah, like a pant size or how you feel in your clothes, or as you said, in your case, getting up the stairs without breathing heavy and that you have good blood and all that. Yeah. And, and I think even doctors that I've talked to have said like for very athletic people that this, the BMI doesn't matter. The BMI is very general and if you put on, it doesn't account for excess muscle. So it's only looking at, it's, it's typically looking at being fat and I'm not, I don't fall into that category anymore because my body fat percentage is very low. Okay. So I, I, you know, the numbers for me, I, the numbers are kind of irrelevant. If I match my numbers up against another dude who's six one and you know roughly the same bone structure as me, I might be really bummed out because his number is lower than mine. You mm-hmm. know, it's very similar to lifting weights. I see a lot of people in the gym that are very hyper focused on lifting really heavy things and. Now I say that, and there would be people that would look at what I was lifting and go, "That's super heavy." But I don't really care about what the number is that I'm lifting. All I care about is like, am I getting it into an eight to twelve rep range? You know, that's mm-hmm. like, if if I can lift something twenty times, it's too light. If I can only lift it six, it's too heavy. If I can get it eight to twelve times, then that's the weight I'm lifting, and so. Whatever that is, I want it to go up a little bit over time, 
but I don't really care that it's, you know, I'm not aiming for it to be 500 pounds. Like I don't care about that. So the number for me is irrelevant with that too. It's just what's useful for my body. Mm -hmm. Okay. So for that part of his question. Yeah. So I do look at the scale, but the scale is like, if I'm maintaining, I want to see that I'm maintaining. And even that I struggle with because I secretly or I um, subconsciously want to see that it's going down. And I have to talk myself through this. If I'm trying to cut fat and like have, uh, you know, revealed obliques, I want to see that the number is going down because that's my intention. I'm eating based on I'm eating in order for that to happen. Mm hmm. But the number itself is somewhat irrelevant. Yeah. You know, I, I I say that and then I imagine if I, it, you know, there's probably people where it becomes a thing where it's like you're now a bodybuilder and you weigh 350 pounds and your heart is really struggling because of that. And then let's talk about the number. But for me, weight loss is no longer about hitting some number. I could sit down with Jared Feather, who trains me, and go, I really want to reveal my obliques about how much weight do you think I have to lose in order for that to happen, and then have some target. But I never have those kinds of conversations with him. Yeah. Okay, and then the other part of what Joe wants to wanted to ask is like, okay, cool, he's cutting, 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 and he's going towards this number. We understand that doesn't necessarily have to be his only measure no, of well, success. Yeah, and, but... and I'm not trying to take it away from him. No, it I know. Be. No, uh, he asked for uh, he, ancillary yeah. potential uh, goals. 100%. Um, he just says, also, can you share some insight on how to add healthy muscle to the routine in a more sustainable way? Yeah. Kind of two questions, Joe, but we like you. Yeah. <laughs> I... I, I um... I would suspect, Joe, that you probably have more muscle than the average guy who's your height and your age simply because you're uh, carrying around more weight and we're spending time in an, uh, in an eating surplus, which creates muscle. So if you're, if you're interested in weight loss or fat loss specifically, then doing resistance training will hold on to and perhaps build a little bit of of more muscle. And so just look into lifting weights. Okay. Great. Yeah. Perfect. A couple of days a week doesn't take a lot. Yeah. Okay, awesome. If you have a question that you'd like answered on the podcast, please email it to us at americanglutton.net. Thanks for listening to this episode of American Glutton. I'm Ethan Suplee and as always joined by my chaperone Paige Dorian. Follow us on Instagram at American Glutton Podcast. Sincerely.